Welcome to the Therapist Thrival Guide. My name is Miranda Barker. I am a clinic, a licensed clinical social worker. Who got my letters mixed up there? <laughs> um, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Lucas Bellini, LMFT. Hello. And we are doing a part two of an episode that we did a couple of weeks, months ago, a couple mm. months ago at this yeah. point all about working with court-involved and high-conflict families. And so during that episode, we really kind of targeted what's it like to be the clinician working with kids in those families. And so today we're pivoting a little bit and talking more about what it's like to be working with the whole system, what it's like to be working with the parents and the other members of the system in those court-involved families. So we have Deb Link back. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Deb Link, LMFT, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist in Minnesota, and Rule 114, Qualified Neutral and Evaluator, do therapy, custody evals, parenting coordination, coaching, mediation, all the things court involved in family law. (laughs) Yeah. And another thing that we went over in the last episode, and I'll link to this in the description, but um, we did a ton of different definitions in the last episode. Yes. And so if there's different people or words or things that we're using during this episode that you're like, I don't know what that means in my state, or I don't know what that Mm -hmm. means um, in general, like, for example, can a parenting consultant request my records? Things like that. Yep. Head on back to the other episode. Yes. If you're feeling solid in that, we'll continue. You can keep listening. <laughs> so, Deb, what do you feel like were some things that we missed in the last episode that you're hoping to cover today? Sure. Well, last, like you said, last time we focused really on that kid role, and we didn't talk as much about the fact that when that child is receiving services, the whole family needs help and the parents need help. And most of the time, the parents need more help than (laughs) the child. And I think that there's this focus a lot of times on let's make sure the kids get supports, which Mm -hmm. is super important. I'm glad people focus on that. And it is most parents' biggest worry in a divorce. It's like, are my kids going to be okay? Right. But ultimately, I think we need to kind of have a paradigm shift that helping the kids is helping the kids through the system and through the parents and getting the system around the kids to support the kids. Um, And so I get a little concerned that sometimes we get kids into therapy and the message that they get is something's wrong with them. Yep. Like they have something to fix and they don't. Like Mm -hmm. it's the system that that needs to, Well, you know, so I hope we get into that today. Yes. And to clarify, when we're talking about the system, I'm using air quotes, Mm -hmm. um, we're not talking about the court system necessarily. We're We're talking about the family system. The family system. And the court system has a big influence on the family system. And so there are these kind of concentric circles, right, that we want to work with the family system in a way that they can engage the family court system mm-hmm. effectively, because those are two different systems. Mm-hmm. Yes. So how does how does family systems theory and like kind of a systemic mindset kind of come to play into all of this, Lucas? Well, I'd say it governs all of it. It's a matter mm-hmm. of whether or not people can appreciate that and make right. space for it. You know, it's it's easy for us to see this from a systemic lens because that's just what we're wired for and that's mm-hmm. what we do and that's how we're trained as marriage and family therapists. But these, you know, the various systems that interact, the family system, the court system, uh, healthcare system and whatnot, they don't always necessarily work. They're systemically connected and related, but they don't always necessarily communicate to each other. Oh, yeah. They're they're often isolated. Yeah. Yes. Like there's a lot of fragmentation, you know, and one of the, the most common enactments, which Deb already referenced, was kids are caught up in the middle of a tumultuous divorce. And so naturally they're struggling, you mm-hmm. know, in, a, in various numbers of ways that that can manifest. And the go-to resolution is to get that kid into therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, which which again, isn't a negative idea. Yeah, it's not a and bad idea unless you think that that's going to be what ultimately will result in resolution. Right. You mm-hmm. know, because it's not. Mm-hmm. The, at best, it's going to be a Band-Aid, you know, to help mm-hmm. the kid cope within the context of a tumultuous situation. But the best they can do within that is cope. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to truly have them experience relief and let them get back to what would be a normal developmental process or a new normal in their Mm -hmm. developmental process, it has to be an intervention that gets the two parents on board, Mm -hmm. you know, and gets them communicating uh, and have uh, 
a plan that they can collaborate on and work together. Mm-hmm. And without that, it's like, yeah, the, the implications of divorce can detrimentally impact kids throughout the rest of their childhood. Mm-hmm. I can just see how quickly this can fall apart, though, in divorce situations, because oftentimes those people are the the divorced persons are hurt and they're not wanting to communicate yes and so that's making this system just automatically kind of i don't know get have it has like a a clog in the (laughs) oh yeah and the the kids are often the clock yeah you know Mm -hmm. because especially if there's a lot of resentment you know uh just negative feelings toward your prior spouse there are much fewer opportunities to like take that out on them because you're mm-hmm. separated. Yep. Mm. You know, and so like the conduit that they can use to get back at their partner is often the child or mm-hmm. the children. So like they would say they would put like take their anger out on the kids or they would use their kid to communicate. The well, it things. could be that. I mean, you know, divorce is one of the most distressing life experiences yep. anyone can it's, go through. Isn't it an ace? Uh, um, it's just it's an a ace. Divorce. It's an ace for a child whose parents are going through divorce, but aces are under like under 18. But mm. in that, you know, isn't it the American Psychological Association that has kind of that index of different stressful experiences? Yes. And yes. it is really high up on that index. Oh, for the grown-up. Yeah, for the for the, adult for the grown-up, for right. Sure. So for mm-hmm. the for the kid, it's an ace. Mm-hmm. For the grown-up, it's, you know, I don't know if we have an equivalent of adult aces, but it's that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say there are the more surface level obvious manifestations of it which might be yeah, just being more grumpy as a parent toward the kid uh, or, you know, like talking harshly about the spouse to the kid. But what really can get to affecting their development, you know, and getting these kids stuck is when it's more of like the subtle ongoing things where you look at their parent as a threat to their development, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and you know that the ultimate way to stick it to the parent or your ex-spouse is to limit contact with the kids or interfere with the relationship that they have with the kids and a lot of times parents don't necessarily do this consciously with the sense of you know the best way for me to get back at them is Mm -hmm. to you know leverage my kids Mm -hmm. as pawns Mm -hmm. it's much more so they can they truly convince themselves that Mm -hmm. the other parent is a threat yeah is unsafe Mm -hmm. and it often manifests as these statements of I'm just trying to keep them safe. Mm. I'm just trying to do what's Mm -hmm. best for the kids. But if we really take a step back and examine what's best for the kids, you know, what really gets lost in that is, and I've been so convinced of this throughout my entire clinical career, uh, especially in the three years I spent in adolescent day treatment, and just my studies on not only human development, but like cultural anthropology and evolutionary psychology, It's like a child's attachment to a biological parent is powerful. Mm -hmm. It's primitive. Mm -hmm. And it's because that parent is a part, their DNA is in their bones. Well, and that's why, like, there are books called The Primal Wound. Yeah. Where we talk about, you know, children who, um, I've only read that book kind of in the context of adoption. But Mm -hmm. it's like, that is a primal wound of taking a child away from their biological parent. And it's Mm -hmm. significant. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most significant wounds a child can experience. And... You know, so there's that aspect of it from a attachment lens, mm-hmm. you know, that it's just you're sever- severing a tie that's yeah. po- so powerful mm-hmm. that they will feel it in ways that are mutually powerful. Well, and, and it'll affect yeah. them for the rest of their lives. For the life. rest of their lives. Yeah. And you I know? think that we, we see this most clearly, at least I did, in the part of my career when I was working with kids um, who had been taken out of their homes by Child Protective mm-hmm. Services and working with them in their foster homes and with their biological parents, right? And it was fascinating to me that these kids had been through harm that had been substantiated by child protection, right? Like, so mm-hmm. in in divorce, there's sort of this, like, are the kids being harmed? But it's mm-hmm. kind of this nebulous, ambiguous harm, right? Um, like, it, more, like more of an emotional harm or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that parents when when they're going through divorce they are worried that the kids are being harmed yeah and they have theories about how the other parent typically is more responsible for that harm right but um in in cps types of situations that harm has been substantiated and documented mm-hmm. and we know that it's true mm-hmm. it's objectively true right and it never ceased to amaze me that these kids who had been harmed 
were so loyal to those parents. Yeah. yeah. And they desperately wanted mm -hmm. to return home, even though their foster parents had more money and better food and could pay for them to play soccer mm -hmm. and all the extra things, right? They wanted to go home. Mm -hmm. And they viewed anyone who was standing in their way of going home as the enemy, mm -hmm. right? The child protection social worker, big enemy, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and me, because I was connected to that person, you know, not quite so sure they could trust me. Um, and so it's been fascinating for me to take that context, right, and then move over into this divorce situation where they start to – so when the person who's kind of pulling them away from one of the parents is not some big, bad, ugly, you know, state agency called mm -hmm. child protection, it's the other parent, they start – to have a very different response to not having contact with a parent. And then we move into this resist-refuse dynamic often where kids are saying, I don't want to be with that mm -hmm. other parent. Even though, you know, primally they do, and there's something that gets in the way of expressing that, that does not get in the way when we're talking about like a child protection situation. And that's why it's always so fascinating to me that the parents are always talking to me about harm mm -hmm. and and safety, right? And I say that not, I say that with no disrespect because, you know, m one of my specialties in this world is domestic violence. And I understand that there are times where we have a safety concern in a family, mm -hmm. right? So I say that, you know, very clearly. Um, but safety is kind of this ill-defined concept within a divorce situation. Mm -hmm. And they think that that's the, the main cog that we need to kind of be focused on. But I don't think it is because even in situations where kids were documented, you know, unsafe mm -hmm. in a child protection situation, their safety is not the main motivating factor for those kids. That's not the thing that's driving them. But if you talk to a parent, you know, in a divorce situation, they do think that that is the number one thing that's driving them. And so something else is going on there. And it's a lot more about loyalty, mm -hmm. I think, than it is about safety. And and that now we're moving into, right, like where the, the therapist, the family systems therapist that comes into this kind of situation, they have to be able to smoke out like all of those different motivations and dynamics um, to get to what is best for the kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you, and, you know, loyalty is an aspect of it. You know, going back to the primitive piece and even the genetic piece, you know, it's like I have two biological parents, and I'm a genetic makeup of 50% uh, of each of them. Yes. Like, they are truly in mm -hmm. my bones. They're such yep. a powerful part of who I am. I can articulate that as an adult. You know, as a child, we can't articulate that, right. but we feel it. Feel it. Like, mm -hmm. it's embodied, and what gets really psychologically twisted for these kids is to be put in a, a position where things are suggested to them or overtly told to them that suggests that one of their parents is bad. Mm -hmm, right. And if they're led to believe that one of their parents is bad, what happens then is they start to believe that part of them, them is, is bad. bad. Mm -hmm. Because this other, this half of, this person who constitutes half of who they are, if they're a villain, mm -hmm. it's like, what does that mean mm -hmm. for me? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and so it's there are situations, of course, like child abuse, you know, and, and, yes. and that need to be handled objectively and overtly. Uh, a lot of these situations, you know, can play out when there's no history of, you know, child abuse or anything. Mm -hmm. Maybe there was domestic violence between the parents and whatnot. Um, but these kids really just get lost in it when it becomes a battle of one parent trying to convince the kids in the courts that the other parent's bad. Yep, yep. You know, and so that's that's where things get problematic. That's where things get messy. And that's where things, you know, the other context of going back to the interrelated systems here, when things do get to that in tumultuous court battles, it's like then you really limit the pool of family therapists that even want to step into that and do oh, that Oh, absolutely. Work. You can't mm -hmm. find people to do it. Yeah. yeah. I always, I've said many times that, that I don't think I can name or locate in my brain a case that I've worked on that didn't have like one of five components. There's always like reasons why people end up all the way into that resist, refuse kind of thing. And so my top five are um, either there's been a chemical dependency issue or somebody believes there is, right? Um, chemical dependency can, uh, as we know, wreak havoc on a family system mm -hmm. and it's very scary for kids. And so when there has been that type of thing and it's untreated or one of the parents believes the other one has a problem 
and they're scared about the person passing out on their parenting time, driving drunk with the mm-hmm. kids, like those sorts of things. Um, the other one would be mental illness. Same thing, right? Either somebody has, you know, some mental illness or the other parent believes they do, right? And so these are the people that you, you know, you know, I think he's got bipolar. Mm-hmm. I think he needs to be on medication before he can see the kids. I think she has, you know, depression that keeps her from being able to take care of the kids. So whether that's happening or somebody truly believes it is and is worried about the kids in it, right, that's that's a factor. Um, domestic violence would be the next one, right? Like either it's happened or somebody believes it has. Um, and child abuse would be the fourth one, right? Either it's happened or somebody is convinced that it has happened. So, um you know, these would be like the moms and sometimes dads who believe that the kid has been molested mm-hmm. and the other parent is saying no. Um, the last one is parental alienation, right? So either that's happened or somebody believes it has happened. And usually I don't see any of those five in isolation. Usually mm-hmm. if you've got one, you've got two or three, right? Mm-hmm. And so what's difficult is that most of the parents have really good intentions and their conscious motivation, like the stuff that they understand about mm-hmm. their motivation, is trying to protect the kids from parental mental illness and parental chemical dependency mm-hmm. and b- domestic violence and child abuse. Um, but there's like a sixth factor there that having their connection, their bond with a biological parent disrupted is also incredibly detrimental and dangerous to kids. Mm -hmm. And most of the time you find that parents are willing to sacrifice that danger because they don't understand it, right? Like I think that most parents totally get how it could be damaging to a kid to have a chemically dependent parent who's passing out and not taking care Mm -hmm. of them and driving with them. And like that's objectively easy to understand. This danger or damage that can come from having less time or less connection with a parent is really difficult for a parent to wrap their mind around. And so they try to protect the kids from these big dangers while kind of creating another one over here. Mm. And they're sometimes really um, hesitant to try to find a balance where we're protecting adequately from all the dangers instead of perfectly from this one. So right. what I mean by that is if if the child doesn't have any contact with that other parent, then we know for sure the kid's not going to get sexually abused by that mm-hmm. parent. So we have perfectly protected against sexual abuse. But we've created this other wound right over here where the kid's cut off from that parent. And so then we start to talk about like what's a balanced approach? Is there a way to protect against this fear or concern over here and maintain the connection to the other parent. And when you start to use that word and, these parents get really twisted up inside because they yeah. think you're asking them to put their kid at risk, yeah. right? And you're, so they're taking a what can often be a low probability threat or risk and right. putting all of their energy and focus and resources yes. into preventing but maybe a low probability threat or risk right. at the expense of other risks mm-hmm. that they're either yes. creating or ignoring. Right. Yeah. Yes. But and they don't know that they are. Yeah. Right. Because, I mean, I would say that, you know, I got my master's degree and practiced for five years before I truly ever learned the extent to which this thing over here was a risk. So the average parent who, you know, is brilliant in their own right, but they're an accountant or they're, you know, yeah. something else, they don't yeah. they don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I think a lot of it is just that they don't know. And by the time someone like me is sitting there trying to explain some of this to them, they're not sure who they can trust and they don't they don't want to make a mistake. I really do think that that is what most of these parents are truly motivated by. They don't want to make a mistake. Their kind of worst case scenario is that in 10 or 15 years the kid comes back to them and they find out that this whole fear was founded and the kid was mm-hmm. hurt in their childhood and now they're going to feel guilty. Mm-hmm. And so they they're motivated by making sure that they don't have that moment later on mm. in life and that their kid isn't harmed. But then, yes, they create this other this other wounding that they just truly don't understand. So the, the, the disruption and the attachment to the other parent is, yes. you know, the wound. Uh, and the motivation is fear. You know, like what yes. you're describing is a fear-based 100%. motivation of parenting. Mm-hmm. And so the other layer there then is that these kiddos are largely alienated or cut off from one parent 
Right. And so this primary parent that they do have is so overwhelmed by their own fear yes. that they're, you know, we know how kids absorb the energy of their yes. parents' mm-hmm. anxiety. Yeah. And so now the kids are in a situation where on the one hand, it's like, where's my other parent? They're going to worry about them. They're going to, yeah. you know, internalize a lot of it onto themselves. They're going to question whether or not, you know, is my parent actually a monster? And does that mean I'm a monster too? But also they're primary provider now at this point is just feeding them with fear and anxiety Mm -hmm. of their own and so all of these things start to interact and that's why kids can truly get lost in divorces in ways that will disrupt their development in a manner that can be lasting for a very long time yes i have so many adult clients who in their 30s and 40s finally start to dig into and realize the impact that their parents' divorce had mm-hmm. on them as a child mm-hmm. and how that's showing up and manifesting in their adult relationships. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and I don't mean to just always pull this back <clears throat> to this topic, but oh my gosh, like you see this play out in adoptees. You see this mm-hmm. play out in um, kids who have gone through foster care, like kids yes. who have had that interruption. And I think I think back to like when I worked in adoption, like you'd have you'd have so many parents who would think that they were doing the best for their kid by cutting out birth parents. Yes. And you would and you just see the exact same results where yes. it's like there's a, a good way to have a relationship with a birth parent. I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of open adoption and just mm-hmm. like the research is a huge fan of open adoption too. Yes. And so it's just like the you see this play out where you have a grown up that has a fear. And, f- and thinks that this is the way to protect their kid when in reality they're you know they're they're creating this other issue over here because they're not thinking with complexity Mm-mm. you know and just in general at large you know not just parents going through a divorce but all parents it's like parenting this is the first era of raising children where it's no longer a mystery <laughs> you know it's mm-hmm. like we we we're we have resources beyond what our parents did mm-hmm. yeah. now. It's like we have incredible research from human development, attachment, the family sciences, neuroscience. Yep. It's like we have a very good grip on how to optimally raise children. Yep. But I, I, sometimes I feel like we're the only ones who know this. We're mm-hmm. the only ones who are exposed to this. Mm-hmm. You know, And so there's not great public awareness. Well, but I think there's also like people – people can know things logically yep. and still like feel that fear and it's like instinctual to need to protect and so it's like yeah. the, the emotional part of their brain can take over the logical part oh, yes. yeah so it's a tall order yeah you know yeah. to be able you know at, at least consuming that knowledge and exposing yourself to it at least gives you something to ground yourself in and make sense of that fear as it might overwhelm you well and, and question it and yeah and question it you know, yeah. and, and make better sense of it, be able to put it into a context. Because when, when we're experiencing anxiety and we don't know how to make sense of it, we don't know where it's coming from, we don't know what to do, it's like that anxiety mm-hmm. will just build off of itself, mm-hmm. you know, yep. and push us deeper into that paralysis mm-hmm. where we're not making logical decisions at all. And the deeper we're pushed into that, the more close and resistant we are to that knowledge being deferred to us, you know, as it is and when it is. And, you know, so like if, if every parent, so everyone I know who has a kid, I give them the whole brain child. Like mm-hmm. it's a really yes. good book to start with. Mm-hmm. It's, it's such a good so book. It's so digestible. Yeah, It gives you so much. It's my favorite you know. parenting oh, book. Oh, yeah. Like it's such, and every now and then Amazon has it on sale for two ninety nine. Mm-hmm. That's why I buy like 20 of them, you know, yeah. just to keep them on stock. Oh, well, I guess now we got a bunch in our storage now unit because we, we had Tina Bryson, Tina Payne Bryson to our conference. Um, <laughs> She's so great. Oh, uh, so great. You know, and it's like, this stuff is just so helpful and it's it's not being put to practice at the level of what, public awareness. What, one of the things that, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and yet like we are therapists in this room. We know these things and it's still hard for us even to put these oh, into practice. Yeah. Oh, like I yeah. just yeah. need to call that out. Like it's, yes. it's hard to, to Nobody be Nobody like, watching I the know podcast gets to watch me parent at Target <laughs> because then it just won't. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> but one of the things it does teach you, which I think is like the greatest. When I read this, I was like, oh, this is so great. Um, but they pretty much narrowed down that to foster a secure attachment in your child. You you only need to do the proper parenting response three out of ten times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
you know Isn't it's that like freeing it's so it's freeing. just good at, you just got to be good enough yeah mm-hmm. good enough like good three enough three parenting. that's 30 percent yeah. in any other context Thank goodness. that's that's not even that's goodness. not only a failed grade but that's yes. like not even close to being a <laughs> yes. d yeah you know like you just bombed that yes. that's horrible uh, right. but in parenting we can get away with it mm-hmm. yeah and so like what i tell parents is strive for seven mm-hmm. yeah you know it's like give yourself that buffer on both ends mm-hmm. it's like don't don't strive for perfection Parents who try to be the perfect parent all the time, I think that's weird. And I think their kids are going to be weird, you know, because that's just not human. It's like, let your kids see you get at least a little bit dysregulated and have the imperfect response. Mm -hmm. Because then what this other research says is, you know, when you don't have that perfect response, it's super valuable and helpful for kids for you to acknowledge that and repair. Yes. 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 Which is what you're getting at. You're getting at a resilience-based model of parenting, right? And I love that about Tina's work. Um, And that, I think, has been, if we talk about sort of what I've taken personally from this work, is that we are not trying to protect our kids from everything. We are trying to help build resilient kids that can get through things, right? And I find that that, so this is a clinician tip, right? That is a really good avenue, usually, to talk to the parent who's more afraid, mm. right? Because if, if we kind of play it out, right? Like I remember um, once I was on a panel and this uh, judicial officer asked a question and said, okay, so Deb, you know, what, or asked the panel, what, why would I, as a judicial officer, make a plan to reintegrate kids back into a situation where there has been like ongoing chemical dependency? And let's say we're on relapse number three. Why would I, like, shouldn't I just at some point as the judicial officer protect the kids from the constant back and forth, right? And, you know, obviously we do have to create some level of stability, right? And so if this parent is relapsing every three months and the parenting time schedule is changing Mm -hmm. all the time, right, then we've got to figure out stability. We want to do that in a way that preserves the attachment to that parent who is addicted so that when they are more stable, that attachment is waiting for them. But if we have, you know, if, if those three relapses have happened over six years, right, one of the things I said to that judicial officer is forever and all time, those kids are going to have a parent who has a history of addiction. Mm-hmm. And so here's the resiliency-based skill set that I want those kids to have. I want them to be able to identify when their parent is sober. I want them to be able to identify when their parent is not doing well. I want them to know who they contact and what kind of boundaries they draw when their parent isn't doing well. I want them to know what they should expect of their parent when their parent isn't doing well. And then how to reconnect with their parent when their parent's gone through treatment again, mm. right? This I is what that. I That's want so them to beautiful. know for their whole lives. Yeah. Because guess what? They're going to be doing this at 25 and 35, right? Probably. Mm-hmm. And they're going to meet people in their early yes. adulthood, you know, later adulthood that struggle with chemical dependency. Yes. And they might even be drawn to them as romantic yeah. partners. And so how do yeah. we how they, do we figure this out, right? And Especially so, if they didn't have the interventions that you just outlined. Right. You know, it's like that's what increases the probability that they're going to be drawn toward that, you know, yes. as a future partner. Exactly. And so so I talked about, you know, like can the system have a process for when this parent struggles, how the kids identify, pull back, right? And then expect this person to get the help that they need and then reconnect, right? Like that repair piece. And so I think that that's helping helping parents understand that when their kids don't have all of those skills, there's a risk to that. And that risk for their lifespan is a lot of times greater than the risk of the one thing that they're worried about in, like in the childhood, right? Like, so I, I've had some good luck trying to help parents encapsulate, let's talk about the developmental risk for your child's whole development mm-hmm. and their future, and sometimes that is what really speaks to a parent because yeah. they need a professional to help them see that whole thing, mm-hmm. right? Because they're lost in it. So oh, much yeah. so much happens in a divorce so fast yes. and it's constant. And yes. so much can happen over a span of 12 to 24 months, mm-hmm. depending on how messy the divorce is. Yes. And so it's like, yeah, you get this hyper focus on the immediate moment. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can't you see to- the forest yeah, or the you trees. You totally lose sight of 
their development at large. Of course. I like those points. And I think that they make a lot of sense for an older child. But like if I'm a parent of a younger child, how how do you make those? Or if I'm a clinician working with a family? Yes with young kids? That's a good question. Yes. So that's where, absolutely. So if we have a 13-year-old, they can kind of figure out like, huh, mm-hmm. I think I think mom had some, some alcohol today or something. You know, we have a two-year-old. That's when we use a lot more of the supervised visitation types of things. That's where we, and sometimes it's family supervised visitation, right? Like that's where, you know, if you've got a parenting coordinator in there, they can interview the parents, right? The, so that would be the child's grandparents. Sometimes those folks are great resources and great assets, and they're completely safe people. And if they're present during the parenting time, then you can, you know, develop trust over mm-hmm. time. We also, I mean, in the world of chemical dependency, we a lot of times will use testing, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, um, having a parent do alcohol monitoring for the 24 hours before their parenting time and then throughout their parenting time Mm -hmm. so that we know that at least, you know, the parent's not going to drive drunk in the car, the kid's not going to, you know, like those real big fears, we can mediate through Mm -hmm. some of those pieces. Um, So depending on the concern, right, we, there are safeguards that we can put in place. And yes, those things do need to be in place, especially when you have those younger Mm -hmm. kids. Because there's two problems, well, not problems, but just two things are true about younger kids. They don't have the verbal capacity to describe what's going on to, to a different caretaker. Mm-hmm. And then they don't have the capacity to care for themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they need this extra layer of protection. Um, but I think that this idea of, you know, resilience, this is my big mantra. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that, you know, Tina Payne Bryson does a great job in her work capturing it. Um, But it is sort of, I think, the nexus of all those things you were talking about, neuroscience and family sciences and, you know, all of the attachment research and everything we've learned about parenting. What all of that tells us when we put it all together, one of the things it tells us is that we're not trying to create a perfect environment with perfect parents where a child has a perfect upbringing. We're trying to teach kids how to bounce back when things Mm -hmm. aren't perfect because that's actually what life is. Um, so I, I think that's a big piece of what I end up doing is working with parents to capture that vision. Mm-hmm. Um, just slow down. You know, it's yeah. like pause. You know, let's mm-hmm. take a step back, examine this situation yep. from a much broader context. Yes. And even that, I would imagine, can put them in a position where they experience relief. Yes. You know, to even have that initial experience of taking yes. a step out of the chaos that they've been so hyper-focused on. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and it's, it's, and especially when you have a parent who, and in these situations, you know, this is almost always a case where they're very clear that they love their kids. Mm-hmm. Yes. They love their kids. Their kids is their priority. They're invested in their kids. Yes. And so that's something I always notice is parents who will do a lot of things that complicate the kiddo's adjustment or overtly complicate right. their adjustment. It's like they're not doing it with malicious intention no, on behalf of most their of the kids. Time, no. It's like they love their kids. You know, yep. and that's not really up up for – that's established. That's clear. You know, and so leverage that, you know, reinforce that, affirm that. That's a good way to join with them mm-hmm. and yes. establish that foundation of a therapeutic relationship, yep. which you absolutely need if you're going to expect them to open themselves up to a different mm-hmm. way of looking at it. And then from that, you know, I, I found success in having parents, like bringing everything back to that, you know, mm-hmm. and so it's like – they're alienating the kiddo from a, bi- a biological parent. It's like, okay, you know, it's like, it, help me understand how you're seeing that as being within their best interest, mm-hmm. you know, and then mm-hmm. they'll outline that. And then you shift it to, you know, have you considered how your kiddo's internalizing that? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you think they're making sense mm-hmm. of this? And yep. really get them to focus on their internal experience of being in the position of one parent you know, who's trying to protect them, Mm -hmm. um, but doing it in a way where it's creating more and more distance from their other parent, Mm -hmm. you know, and and just really making it as child-centered and child-focused as possible, again, based upon leveraging their commitment to being a good parent and loving their kiddo. Yes, yes, absolutely. Is this a lot of what, when we talk about, like, reunification therapy, is this a lot of what that work looks like? Yeah, so... There's sort of two halves. Well, that's not even. There's the problem with reunification therapy is there's like nine halves, right? <laughs> um, but what Lucas was just describing is the work that you're doing with with the person that we call the preferred parent. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're called the in parent. That 
you know, that both of us were just talking about kind of that that shift in thinking that yep. needs to happen for that person. So that's one piece of it, of the and puzzle. And the preferred parent is often self-designated or can be in, um, in some of these situations. It, my experience is that it's designated by the kids. By the time a case comes to me, the kids are refusing to go to one house or the other, and the kids have decided which house they're not going to. And so like I'm speaking yep. to what happened prior to that that okay. orchestrated sure. the kids being put in that position sure. where they have a preferred parent. Sure. Maybe it's like that the preferred parent kicked the other parent out or something yeah, like, like that. Yeah, like the preferred parent can often do a lot to – engineer a <laughs> dynamic where the kids will naturally defer to them as a preferred parent that, not in every case yeah so a lot of times so a lot of times I think the preferred parent is the one that was more actively involved when the marriage was intact yeah. you'll a lot of times see that it was like a stay-at-home mom mm. oh yeah right like yeah. it was somebody that the kids yeah. were used to kind of being their person like if if their gym shorts were too small they asked this person yeah. to reorder yeah. them and like it's kind of the person that's yeah. always who took been. them to the doctor yeah who, exactly yeah. yep um then you have the person we call the rejected parent or the out parent and that one simultaneously is doing very different work and that is to understand the child's perspective and accept that the child's perspective may not be the adult version of reality right so you know the kid might say like my my dad was angry a lot and the dad's telling me i wasn't angry right but what i'm trying to help the dad understand is like there's this tone of voice that you use that might not read angry to you but it read angry to your kid right and so it's that taking responsibility for the child's experience mm -hmm. and doing the repair um, and so it it can sometimes take even more uh, mountain moving to get that parent ready to do a repair than to get this parent ready to support the repair, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. there's kind of these two pieces. And then you've got the kiddo who, I mean, sometimes won't even get out of the car to come in to try to do the repair, right? Like, I mean, I have definitely had sessions in parking lots almost, mm -hmm. you know, like not really, but like, mm -hmm. you know, I have had sessions in parking lots where we uh, were working very hard to make sure confidentiality was honored despite the fact that we were in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's a kid readiness piece, there's a parent readiness piece, and an other parent readiness piece. And it really does feel like you have to align the stars to get to the place where all three places can be ready for movement at enough of the same time that you can get any movement. Mm -hmm. That's what's so hard about this work. Otherwise, they'll just keep missing each other. Yes, Right. So, you know, and, and a lot of times this is my experience. OK, we don't have good research really on this work. I mean, we have some, but it's not a huge body. Right. Going back to connecting to what we were talking about before, kids desperately love and want to be connected with their grownups. Right. And most of the time what you see is that a, a child is being negatively impacted by a parent over here. And usually this parent, the preferred parent, is trying to tell this other parent during the intact relationship. Like when you use that tone of voice, do you see how mm. they're scared? Like this person's not listening over here, okay? So then they get divorced and this, you know, the kids are going on time over here and they don't like how it feels, right? And a lot of times the kids will name all the things that they tried, right? So usually my experience is that the kids are ready first, and they are tr they're making these, you know, if we think about it from a Gottman perspective, they're making these, these bids for mm -hmm. connection or bids for repair, mm -hmm. right, with this parent, when this parent doesn't even know there's anything to be repaired because they're in denial, mm -hmm. right? And then it doesn't go well. And then the kid over here comes to me and says, I tried. Mm -hmm. I tried. Like, this is what I did. And the wounding when they try and they feel rejected is so deep for them. They are, like, buttoned up. They yeah. ain't trying again right and so my experience is that by the time they come to reunification therapy or you know parent-child contact therapy resist refuse therapy whatever you call it the kids are very guarded and um hurt mm. they're very hurt because their original efforts didn't work right and so then what happens is that you get the parents ready but the kids won't get ready again because they were already ready Hmm. Right. And so it is it, it is really difficult to get everybody on the same page. Um, it's especially difficult when the court case is still going on because the 
it's sort of like anything you say and do can and will be used against you in the court of law, right? And so this parent, the the rejected parent, doesn't want to come in to a therapy office where there's going to be a progress note yeah. and say, yeah, I did scream and yell at the kid, right? They don't want to say that because then yeah. that can get used against them, mm-hmm. right? Um, Which the courts, I mean, this this can't be objectively put out there as like an assurance to everybody. Right. But like the courts get that parents get angry sometimes. Oh, sure. You know, it's like the yeah. courts get that parents are human. Right. And that they they don't hold parents to this expectation of perfection. Perfection. No, they don't. You know, and so it's like when you start to get so worried and scared about it, every little thing. Yeah. And yeah. when everything's viewed as potential evidence to be used against you. Yep. That interferes with your capacity to be the parent that your kids need you to be 100 percent. but to be fair it like things will be used against you oh absolutely yeah so like don't don't do the big things you know that it's like don't be abusive Mm -hmm, you know physically or verbally it's like get get a good sense on what you actually need to be worried about yeah because those things are much easier to avoid Mm -hmm. you know than when you're caught up in every little imperfection Mm -hmm. It's like then, then you're parenting on eggshells, you know, yep. and it's it's you can't be the human and the parent that your kids need you to be. Yep. Well, and going back to the repair part too, like how valuable it, it it is to for the parent to say, yeah, I lost my cool, but then this is what I did. Like I tried yeah. to yeah this repair is how, yeah. And, and then gets... and then you turn something that was maybe a threat into a positive, mm-hmm. you yep. know, because you did acknowledge it, you yeah. took accountability for it, and and you repaired. And here's what gets complicated is that. Even in situations where that repair happens, the kid is going to go back and tell the other parent about it. Mm -hmm. And the way that I explain this to parents is that's because kids have one life. They live in two different homes, but they have one life. And they talk about their whole life with both of their parents. So they will talk about crazy stuff that happens at school, (laughs) right, and the other parent's home and Bobby's house when I went on a play date. And, like, they tell both of their parents all the things, right? And ultimately... What you have most of the time is that the kinds of problems that the child is having with that other parent are the same problems that the parents had with each other. Hmm. So the kid comes home and says, you know, well, I tried to have a conversation with mom, but she was just sitting on her phone and she didn't even hear me. (laughs) And this parent goes, oh, yeah, I've had that experience a thousand times with her. It's part of the reason I'm not with her because she's not present, mm-hmm. right? And so it resonates at a core level. And that's when the parent starts to what they think is just validating the child. Like, yeah, she is always on her phone. And, you know, like, and you get that kind of a conversation going. And then it's difficult, I think, for parents to truly believe that the other parent in the privacy of their own home is trying to turn over a new leaf, is trying to do it differently, mm-hmm. is trying like maybe is apologizing, is more present, is repairing. And I think it's difficult for two reasons. One, because, you know, as humans, we believe behavior. So when all we've seen is one pattern, it's really difficult for us to assume that there's a totally different mm-hmm. pattern going on when we don't have any evidence that we've actually seen of that pattern. But on a more core level, it's a really emotionally threatening and difficult message to receive if you do start to believe that the parent is fixing the problem over here because it wasn't worth fixing it to save the marriage it wasn't worth fixing it for you but it's Mm. worth fixing it for the kid and that is so hard for parents and so then to to kind of protect themselves from that uncomfortable feeling they just don't believe the change can ever happen or they yeah they need to believe the change can never happen they want to believe the Mm -hmm. change will never happen and that's why the courts Mm. are not always terribly interested in hearing about what the nature of the marriage was between the two parents because they know in a lot of ways that all of those problems are more or less reconciled because you're not married anymore you know it's like you're separated and it the focus shifts to the extent to which those patterns are perpetuated or not perpetuated in that parent's relationship to the Mm, kiddos and how they're parented and i think i mean this is here's my 
this is my like soapbox about the courts, but I think I think the courts have over the last, you know, 30, 40 years become convinced of everything we've been talking about today, right? Like I think that 50 years ago, you saw a lot more verdicts coming back with like more time to mom than mm-hmm. dad. Yeah. Now, the courts understand everything we've been talking about and you're seeing things come back way more 50-50, right? Now, in the state of Minnesota, we don't have a presumption that it has to be 50-50. Many states have been passing mm-hmm. those. Um I don't think that's the answer. I don't think mandating 50-50 yeah. is the answer. I do think that more and more judicial officers are doing 50-50 in as many cases as they can. Like that has become kind of the prevailing dominant assumption practically. There's, there's a it, higher threshold for getting an ultimate custody arrangement that's not 50-50. Yes, you have – yes, there's – yes, that's exactly it. There, There's – you have to have more dramatic reasons yeah. to not get 50-50 than you ever yeah. have before in the courts. Hmm. So I think, I mean, my personal bias, this is just Deb Link, is that we've boomeranged a little too far. And what what we're not really good at is identifying the exceptions in the family court system. So, you know, when I go to trainings, I will hear people say, you know, well, here's what's here's what's most of the time true. And of course, there's exceptions. There's kind of like this just real quick comment that, of course, it's not cookie cutter and not every family is the same. But I don't think in family court right now, we're doing a good job of identifying where are the places where a kid should not be in a 50-50 situation. And, you know, for me, we're starting to have that conversation. Um, So one that I'm excited has been a little bit more of a focus of some of the trainings that I've been at lately is this idea of encapsulated delusion, um, which I think is a really it's very rare, but when it happens, it drives the whole case. Um, so this is this is a parent who has a very strong delusion about one thing, but shows no other evidence of delusion somewhere else in their life. Is not delusional, mm-hmm. doesn't have a delusional disorder, but has a fixed belief about one thing that's encapsulated. It's just their delusion is encapsulated to this one thing. So sort of the like you know, most quintessential example of it is the mom who believes that the kid has been molested by the Mm -hmm. dad when in fact that has not happened. And there really isn't anything that you're ever going to do for 18 years of that kid's life to convince that mom that that's not the case. Um, And so every, every decision is made with the assumption that that is true and it is her job to protect the kid from that, right? So that encapsulated delusion, it will completely tear apart a case for years and years and years on end. Um, Hmm. But I don't think we're good at identifying when we've got that versus everything else we talked about today with somebody who's got really good intentions. They're trying to figure out the best thing they can be, you know. So we try for years to like do these interventions, assuming that they, you know, that they have good intentions and that if we educate them, they can change their perspective. If they have the right therapeutic rapport, we spend years trying to get that going and nothing changes, Hmm. right? Because we have this thing over here that we can't identify. But how do you argue with this delusion? Like, how do you, right? You can't. That's the thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You you can't just rationalize no the delusion mm-hmm. no and th- these are the situations where like really i think eventually the court comes to the place where the only remedy is like a blackout period where the kid just yeah. doesn't have any contact with that parent but typically you know you because of everything we've talked about earlier with attachment mm-hmm. courts aren't just doing blackout periods because mm-hmm. that's yeah. damaging to kids right. and so they have to see like that we have exhausted mm-hmm. every other measure mm-hmm. before they just do that mm-hmm. well that process of exhausting every other measure can take four or five years the kids yeah. have been in absolute turmoil that whole time and the family is 300 grand into okay. attorney's fees right and so that's where you know we're not good at that piece i also have a big soapbox about the domestic violence piece that, um, you know, there there is more and more research that's telling us that people who are coercively controlling and abusive are often that way in multiple relationships. And if they are that way with a partner, that will impact their parenting style in ways that do impact the kids. And I don't think we do a good enough job of um, recognizing when we do have a situation where it's not there's not bruises there's mm-hmm. not police reports there's not there's not physical violence but there is a dynamic that is 
very, very, very toxic mm-hmm. to a child's development and to a child's understanding of how to do relationships forever, right? And I don't think we do a good job finding that in mm. the courts either. So I think that I would like to see us work on trying to identify those exceptions in a way that is a little bit more efficient and doesn't put kids and families through the rigmarole that it takes to kind of get all the way to like, oh, this is what's Mm. going on. Um, But I am glad that the family courts um, understand that the rule should be that kids have contact as much as they can maximized with both parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's kind of the point of what we're talking about today. And that's the point of reunification therapy Mm -hmm. is to try to maximize that connection with both parents. I just think we have to be savvy to know when we're in a situation where we have to call pause and say, like, we might actually be over here instead of in the rule. Um, And my experience is that that's tough because it gets to our own stuff Mm -hmm. as therapists, right? Um, We get convinced that our case is the exception for reasons that aren't accurate because of all of our own stuff and and you're in these cases over such an extended Mm -hmm. period of time yep well and gosh just what you're describing is why i don't want to do this it's (laughs) terrifying this work as a clinician or get divorced oh either (laughs) i love you colin but um no but for real i mean it's just like how do you sift through this, Deb. Like this is exhausting to try to figure this out. Okay. So a lot of humility, right? Like, because I just, I say a lot that like I, that this therapists that do this work have to play by baseball rules. Like if you bat 500, you're a really good hitter, right? (laughs) And like, if I bat 500, I'm a really good reunification therapist, which means that half the time I'm wrong. I'm wrong way more often than this Gosh. work than in any other. Apparently, work. I don't know what that's bat like, 500 means. That's like the weather person yes. statistic. Yes, like you're like a weather person doing yeah. this work, right? And so I think we just have to get humble and like stop assuming that and stop getting so upset when people disagree with the way that we're conceptualizing oh, the yeah. case. Do, do not do not expect the courts to be reasonable in ways that reflect your notions of what's reasonable. Well, yeah, or even other professionals, right? Because, yeah. like, as we've been talking, there's, like, 92 professionals on each of these cases, it feels like, right? Yeah. And everybody sees it a little differently. Mm-hmm. And the minute that the professionals start having a pissing match about whose <laughs> version of the case is more accurate, then we've got a parallel process going on to the, you know. so Mediators it, for the mediators. Yes, exactly. And, I mean, I've I've engaged in plenty of those pissing matches myself, right? Like, it, it is um, – so I think humility, right? Um Consultation is really big for me. I'm in like so many more consultation groups mm. than most of my colleagues because I think that when when you present the facts of a case to somebody completely different but someone who does this work, you know, they'll start to kind of poke the holes in your way of thinking. They'll start to ask the questions you didn't ask. And that is essential in this work mm-hmm. in a way that it – I mean, I think consultation is like – it's it, it's the quality control of all therapy, mm-hmm. right? But in this work, it's so, so essential. So I think that consultation helps me sift through the stuff. My own humility. I think our own therapy too, right? Like I think, you know, divorce is such an interesting – a lot of therapists are parents ourselves, right? And so we do these things, these cases, and it threatens our own sense of security mm-hmm. with our own children, mm-hmm. right? Um Divorce threatens financial security. Divorce is an entire identity shift. Mm -hmm. There's a tremendous amount of grieving, right? It is a tremendous loss. Um, And typically, it's a time where people are feeling far more um, anxiety, depression, disconnection than they ever have before. Um, So it's hard to sit with these families and not have your own stuff get triggered because like everything's on the table. Mm-hmm. Like whatever your stuff is, it could be a family of origin stuff. It could be chemical dependency, like whatever your own baggage is as a human therapist, right? Like these cases will pull it out mm-hmm. every last thing, right? So I think, you know, personal therapy, consultation, humility, those are, those are big tools in my toolbox. 
These, I don't, I, I don't know if these episodes, these episodes with you, Deb, are so great. I don't know if they're compelling therapists to get into this work. <laughs> no, it's true. But yeah. I would say that is why, and I say this sincerely, and I've said this sincerely for years, um, folks like you who do dedicate your careers to this, I, mm-hmm. I do think it's truly heroic, mm-hmm. you know, because you're taking on something that such a, well, one, it's like the percentage of the population that wants to be a therapist in the first place. Right. You know, it's like that's. You need to be a little bit bizarre. Yeah. You know, it's like we're, we're a distinct breed. What? Yeah. But then the subpopulation within that, which yes. is probably just as small of a percentage of yeah. folks that want to go into this brand of work. Right. You know, it's, 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 well, now, we let... need it. And I'm just appreciative of it. I agree. But there are so many therapists that like trip and fall into a oh, case yeah. that finds themselves within oh, yes. this. Yes. Like, you need to be knowledgeable. Well, of this if you're, stuff. exactly. Like, if you're a kid therapist, at some point you're going to have, kids that are within the system if you are an adult individual therapist at some point you are going to have a have a client whose partnership is falling apart and this is all a part of it and so um yes like Mm -hmm. not all therapists listening to this episode are maybe called to this type of work but i i would be willing to bet that every single therapist listening is going to have a case that falls yes. within this realm of work. Oh, yeah. yes. And Absolutely. so that's why it's important. You're going to get those parents who are going through the divorce, mm-hmm. right? And you're going to get I don't think you can be in practice and see 25 clients a week for 40 years mm-hmm. and not have individuals come in that are going to sound like these parents, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, <laughs> well, I'm just trying to protect the kids from him because he's so dangerous. Yep. And if you know in the back of your mind that, you know, the way that you can be helpful to that client is to take this very systemic mm-hmm. approach and to educate them about attachment instead of be the individual therapist being the cheerleader for like, well, yeah, you got to advocate for your kid and you've got to protect. and Yeah. And that takes so much courage from a therapist to be able yes, to step does. outside of being the just the supporting right, role. Sucks, oh my you know? gosh. And like, we're, we the need to do role, Absolutely. Like that is what bravery as a therapist looks like where you're calling your yes. clients out and you're challenging them yeah. and you're actually like yes. giving them the tools yeah. to yes. move forward and, and not is... just sit in there in their in their own narrative yes. yeah don't just affirm mm-hmm. you know it's like the big difference between validating and affirming a yes. client and of the 25 ideas for episodes i have on a weekly basis <laughs> that i don't burden you with because they're that frequent um a big one is addressing the role of clinicians who only see individuals or who do primarily individual work with people whose problem is clearly systemic mm-hmm. but yes. they're not working with mm-hmm. them systemically mm-hmm. You know, so it's like being a systems therapist doesn't mean you have, there needs to be more than one client. Exactly. It's work, there's a ton of research that's emerged that shows how individual therapy can even be a predictor of divorces unnecessarily when that individual therapist is not doing systemic work with their Yes. Well, but also even like therapists that aren't, I'm going to say yes and, therapists that aren't asking the right questions like, well... I mean, what about their perspective or, you know, just some of the things that you were saying where it's like taking the perspective, taking, you know, perspective shifting or asking the questions of like, well, what if we're wrong? Like, how what would this look like to challenge you? I mean, just different things like that. And at the very least, maintaining an awareness. And this is why I really like I don't like doing individual therapy because. I just don't have, there's no possible way for me to get the information I need to know to sufficiently support this yes. individual. Mm, and so like when, it, when an individual walks in, it's like, yeah, my ex is a narcissist, mm-hmm. the worst person on the planet. Right. It's like, as a clinician, what that person just told me about their ex is essentially nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. I still know nothing <laughs> about their ex. I actually ex. know more about them than I know about their ex in that moment. Oh, sure. exactly. Yes. And, and yes. like that's that's what I mean when I say working yep. with individuals mm-hmm. systemically is that what the research identified, that's probably the most common aspect of this that causes problems is when therapists will provide clinical 
diagnostic opinions oh on somebody gosh. they've never met oh yes, that is, based that is upon the self-reports of their client. And it happens Incredibly all the time. Incredibly unethical. It happens all the time. And oh, it yeah. makes that individual situation worse. Mm-hmm. It, it yes. further complicates mm-hmm. it. Many times when you have a really horrible divorce, you've got an individual therapist behind one of the parents yes. <laughs> who is creating a lot of the problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, that is a big soapbox. If you talk to anyone in the family law community, like the individual therapists are, ugh, like, I think they, they cause, sometimes they cause a lot of issues. Um, but ultimately... Um, I, I completely agree with you that the, yes, people need to have their individual spaces mm-hmm. to process because they are rebuilding an identity. Mm-hmm. They are grieving. Right. And that shouldn't be happening in front of the co-parent. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but that leads to another really important component of this work. And that's the coordination of the professionals. Yeah. Right. That I just really. I, I, I am all for people having those individual private spaces. Um and I don't think they're helpful unless there is systemic knowledge within those spaces. It doesn't have to be systemic work. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, having mom's therapist and dad's therapist have releases and mm-hmm. talk, mm-hmm. right? And just share those perspectives like, okay, so there was a big kerfuffle about whatever. And you're going to hear about it from your client. But if you also hear about it from the other party's therapist then you can kind of go oh like you can help your client find like a sure footing within Mm -hmm. it where they are ultimately you know i i talk a lot with my clients about like following their own values right like if you want to be a person of integrity you want to be a person who's responsible you want to be a person who's trustworthy how do you be that kind of person in this co-parenting situation right like how do you just be who you want to be and the way that I understand the times that they're not doing that is not from them. It's from <laughs> the other side, mm-hmm. right? And so that coordination of care with, with the professionals is so important. Um, yeah. And it, it tells me a lot when, when somebody won't do it with me. Hmm. I've worked yeah. on a few of those yeah. cases where mm-hmm. I send the release over and they won't do it. Hmm. And so, Which is unethical. Well, well, either their client hasn't signed the release and hasn't mm-hmm. given them permission or they've bought the client's narrative mm-hmm. so much yep. that they're not willing to do it or both, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know. Uh, it's one thing if the client doesn't sign the release. Which I think happens quite a bit, actually. Yeah. But if the yes. other, if the client has signed a release and the professional just doesn't, doesn't want to do, do it, it, that's right. unethical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's another secret component of this work that's just so incredibly mm important um but ultimately kind of the the you know the question you're bringing up about like why would anyone want to do this um for me so so i have two things to say about that um many of us wanted to do this because it's our story and that's why every time i do this type of a thing i talk about people doing their own personal therapy because i do think that having folks um so for me i'm the product of a high conflict divorce right so I understand it from that child perspective. There are others who have been through it from an adult perspective, and they are just passionate about mm-hmm. helping people not make all the same mistakes that they did, right? Um, and I think that that can be a beautiful reason and beautiful motivation to get into this type of work mm-hmm. if you've done your own work. Yeah. But all of your stuff doesn't belong in the, I mean, yeah. just think about how messy a process that we've just talked about. <laughs> and when the therapist's own baggage is mm-hmm. another piece of the mess, it's just so unfair to the clients and it ramps everything up. Yeah. So, um, so I will say that there are people who are drawn to this work and it's usually for a reason. And that reason usually means that we better be doing our own work. That's one commercial I have. <laughs> um, the other thing though, is that when I think about exactly what you said, Lucas, about all of a sudden we're in the first generation where we know like we know how relational styles and attachments are built we know when they're built we know what builds them in different directions we know how they can be healthy we know what disrupts them you know when we put everything we know together um it gives me a lot of hope that if that if we could do it better with all that information we could solve a lot of problems right Mm -hmm. like i think about you know one of the things that i just looked into was um, 
the database of all the mass shooters, the what is the the violence? For, I can't remember the pro, the name of the project, but they have a database of all the the mass shooters. And I just spent a couple hours going through that database, like understanding what were the childhood experiences. They have all the aces in there oh, for that. Wow. Wow. Okay, so like, so I I think we could solve a lot of issues. I'm not saying that the work I do is going to prevent a mass shooting. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying mm. that like later on, like 15, 20 years down the road, if we could raise this generation differently. I think there's a lot of good that we could do. And hmm. the the basis of that is attachment, right? The yeah. basis of the whole yeah. thing is attachment. And so that motivates me to fight for these kids' attachment mm-hmm. with their parents, right? Like I think there's a huge meaning in it. There's nothing more fun than the first meeting where the kid sees that parent for the first time in two years and gives them that, you know, big hug and yeah. you get to see it, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Like the, So this is god-awful work we talked about all the board reports and everything on the last (laughs) episode it's not fun right Mm -hmm. but there's there's real high reward and there's potentially really deep meaning in it Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that speaks to certain people because that brought us into this work yeah and and that's you know exactly what i was gonna say uh if you didn't beat me to it (laughs) if you're looking for a reason it's meaning Mm -hmm. yeah it's and there are going to be a number of people listening to this who and I'm kind of, I'm wired in this way. Uh, it didn't necessarily play out with complex family systems work, but when someone tells you like, oh yeah, this work is too hard. It's too yeah. demanding. You don't yeah. want to bother. It's like, there's 5%. Me up and I'll yeah. show you. Yeah. yeah. It's like that. I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm, yeah. Doing, I'm starting today. Yeah. If that's um, you, call me. <laughs> because at the end of the day, it's like this, you know, and I'm a parent um, going through divorce, you yeah. know, and it's like, so being on the personal end of how difficult it can be to get these yeah. right resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's you're providing one of the most important services to mm-hmm. helping kids, parents, families and generations. Mm. You know, by by signing up to yeah. do this intensity of yeah. of clinical care. Yeah. I think that generational piece is really motivating and it's yeah. true. Mm. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for yeah. joining, Deb. This Absolutely. has been such a good part two episode, and I feel like we just dove so much deeper into all mm-hmm. of these different topics, and I feel like I learned so much, and I, I really enjoyed this episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. we'll have you back. Like, it, I feel like we need to have you back every few months just to kind of dig into this deeper There's because so, there is so much. much to this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. We'll see you guys next week. The Therapist Thrival Guide is one of many creative productions from Ellie Mental Health. Ellie is an outpatient mental health clinic that began in St. Paul, Minnesota, and has continued to expand to over 20 clinics in Minnesota and a growing number of franchisees across the country. We'll be opening over 500 locations in communities nationwide in the near future.